Welcome everyone to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker and I'm here with my good friend and co-host Mark. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm fantastic. Mark. But I'm here because I'm your friend, not because I'm your co-host, right? It's true. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. It's the only thing that gets you in the door. <laughs> so back to an old saying, you can't affect what other people say, do, or feel. This stops any statements like, well, they're doing it, why can't I? Or... It won't make a difference, so why should I try? Or, why do I have to do it when nobody else will? You can only control yourself. And when you look back, are you going to be proud of the things that you did? Well said, Walker. And that certainly puts context over the last time you were smacking me silly and you kept saying, I can't control how you feel. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. (laughs) See, you just, it's, you can only control yourself, Mark. It's true. you shouldn't. Get yourself. <laughs> so this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to mix things up. We're going to talk about games this week, as opposed to Walker's constant moralizing. He never lets us forget that he studied moral philosophy. He brings it up every other week. Next, he's going to be inundating us with French. It's how he do. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game this week, which is The Wolves. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we played a prototype game, so all the usual caveats and and things, rules due to change, figures, components, all that can change. And this wasn't a paid thing. We talked to the designer, Jason. We met him at Shucks, and we really liked the layout of the game. So we asked him if he could send us a prototype copy, because we enjoy playing games. And so we did. This is a heavy miniature uh, troops on a map type game. The uh, it has a name too, seismic. Yes. Sorry, I was about to say seismic at the beginning, and then I said I thought we'd better do the spiel first, and then now we're back. All right, so this is seismic, designed by Jason Blake and put out by Star Reach Games, and the best, the best of the best, have been sent to this far off planet to terraform it. But terraforming has gone wrong, Mark, and now we all must GTFO. You know, demolishing our terraforming equipment in order to build rockets to get off this planet because it is soon not to be. And there's a lot to like about Seismic. Very interesting theme, like I just said. I've only played it once, but this is what I got out of it. Great action selection. You have 10 cards to choose from, and you're going to be doing five actions for a round, but you have to burn a card is the terminology. So you put one card face down, and then you choose the card you're going to play for that round and so you're only going to be able to play five of those cards per round and it has also as like i said fantastic looking miniatures it has this interesting locking mechanism where where when you engage other troops it sort of locks them in place until one of the players plays a battle card it has a a very open map so no one's going to be sort of like stuck in a corner because you can go off the edges and come on the other side there's also sort of like the mining mechanism scythe where you go down these caves and pop up the other side and I really enjoyed the combat system. Once once we got onto it, it's very quick, very easy, very easy to understand. And that all of that there is enough game, I think, for me. But mm. then there is a well lot. Put. Well there, put. There is a lot of other stuff now <laughs> that sort of breaks down these these things that I enjoy. So there's three more decks. There's a discovery deck and an espionage deck and a relic deck. And this all throws sort of take that out of turn, mess up, because we played with four players, and halfway through the game, two of the players didn't have to work with that, with the card system. They could play whatever cards they wanted. They didn't have to burn them. It was a particular setup whereby 
the opportunity cost of playing a card and the opportunity cost of drawing a card effectively went away for them. And so their key limit was their hand limit. And so they were in a position where they had all these cards flooding into their hand and they would always have to pause and see what they just acquired. And then it was just trivial to play them. I had to play them or discard them. So I'm like, oh, okay, uh, uh, Walker, I guess all these troops die. And uh, Mark, I guess I'm taking all your currency and um, uh, I guess I'll do this thing even though it doesn't really do anything. And so the tempo ground to a halt and it really undercut a lot of the clever bits that you were talking about. The action selection mechanism, which involves genuine trade-offs. Like, do I ever want to do anything with Harvester? in this game. I have to decide right away, and it's it's a really good commitment to decide where to focus on, because you want to play all ten of your action cards yeah. every round. I fell, in love with, I fell in love with that right from the beginning. It was great, yeah. It was like, this is going to be amazing. And like, I had already planned out like my five turns. I was like, this is, this is going to be good. I don't need to do this in the first round. And the first went, round, that worked. And then that, <laughs> yeah, then that the went right, away, out, right, right, right out the window, because you had from then on i had to wait until my turn because right. the the game state would change so much that there was no point trying to plan what you were going to do because of this randomness that was happening I would add one addendum in terms of one of the excellent parts of the action selection, and I would also push back a little bit about your characterization because i'll I'll start with that part actually the espionage cards and the relic cards I thought were okay because the relic cards in particular were an excellent part of the game's tempo at the start of the game, it is very hard to get any relics. Relics are special toys that are special powers that you can keep so long as they're there and you have two active slots. And it's the case that the first time you get a relic, you remember it. And it's very consequential and it's very salient. And they're not really all that take that-ish. They just give you a special boost. As the game goes on, as the planet falls apart and seismic, as it does rather catastrophically and visually pleasingly, relics become more common and you gain a greater ability to be flexible in how you use your relic. The relic that you played in turn five or what have you that you thought you would never part with, suddenly you're ditching because you desperately need that added level of flexibility. So that part I stand by. The espionage cards, only a certain amount can be infected at any given time over the course of the game, so there's this, they cycle through as a general rule. We didn't see so much in our game because in our game of seismic, people were generally taking the one-shot, then discard effects on espionage cards, so as as it happens, there wasn't that intended cycling didn't occur. Now, as, and as far as the other part of the action, uh, action selection element in seismic is bonus actions. At the start of the game, you're presented with this potentially intimidating matrix of bonus actions that can apply at various effects based on various actions at various times. Trying to internalize this at the outset would be a mistake <laughs> because it's there primarily to allow you to be somewhat flexible. I said before, the action selection mechanism forces you to decide, okay, I'm just not doing anything with mechs this turn. But then right around round four, you realize, wait a minute, if I can build a mech, my round four bonus action could be to move that mech. Okay. And suddenly you start getting some interesting flexibility going on if you're able to get your ducks lined up in a proper row. That part I also really, really enjoyed. And it also had minor elements of take that. Minor elements. Like, I'll steal a prisoner, or I'll steal a crystal, or I'll get the crystal that you thought I couldn't get from another source. And then you had the discovery deck. The Discovery deck is easily three times larger than it needs to be. It's a massive deck full of effects, and uh, some of them just don't belong in the game. Flat. Like, just 
utterly, you, you look at the card and you get a frown in your face because you don't want to play it and you don't want it played against you. The first time I played Seismic, I played it twice. Uh, those cards just didn't get played because there was a serious opportunity cost to playing them. We didn't have the same faction abilities where people were drowning in discovery cards. And largely, we were like self-controlling the game. It's like, mm, that'll lead to bad feeling to want to play it. and Which is a legit response, but not one that a game should force you to exercise. A game should not force you to exercise editorial control in the middle of, the, of, of your troops on a map game. And so I really hope that over the course of development and... Sure enough, I'm going to be very specific if asked which cards I think need to go away and stay away. I understand why they're there. There's a possible design remit, but they lead to bad feeling, which is terrible because Jason Blake is clearly a student of troops on a map game. The combats don't lead to bad feelings. You understand why people pick fights the way they do. You're a bit, you're able to get troops back on the map relatively easily if you need to. So it's not like you're completely kneecapped. You're incentivized to not continuously punish the same person in the combat system in seismic. And so you're constantly on the move, looking out for the clever thrust and the, 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 the interesting deployment. So as to get where you need to go, all that part is great. And the extent to which the, the take that element of the discovery cards undermine that experience is quite impressive. I'm reminded actually of a game called Yedo, the, the worker placement game where you're performing missions in feudal Japan. You have all these mission cards and they're wildly imbalanced. And on top of that, there are these take that cards that are wildly imbalanced. A couple of decks of cards. Now we could disagree about the relics and the espionage cards clearly, but a couple, a, a deck of cards or two can really undermine a solid design. And the first time I played Seismic, I had a great time. The second time I played Seismic, I'm like, what's happening to this game I liked? And so I really, I really hope that those elements can be ironed out because there's some genuinely great stuff in Seismic that currently only gets to shine when the cards don't fight it. Yeah. And just go back to what you said about you're incentivized to attack certain people and not the same person over and over again because there's these six blueprints that you need to build this ship to get off the planet and every all of the six players have one and if some players aren't playing then you get those ones automatically and so you sort of have to uh, fight or or cyber attack the, the other sides to get that so you can build it yourself i also thought that was pretty cool it's marvelously thematic it dovetails with the the economic system it dovetails with the battle system everything fits together in a very very pleasing way and the there's just enough flexibility injected by the bonus actions as far as I'm concerned. And then there are these discovery cards. And a lot of the discovery cards, I think, need to go. <laughs> that's, that's the long and the short of it. I mean, maybe if you really wanted to, you could parse them into different decks. You know, the deck for people who want to play a game. And then there are people, uh, a deck for people who want to play Uno. Uh, or <laughs> I'm exaggerating <laughs> somewhat. Uh, but honestly, that's, that's the one thing that I'm definitely going to be paying attention on for development. Is it a huge box full of excellent design and excellent toys? 100%. The sculpts are beautiful, and we are told that the sculpts will be the same for the final published product. And they're actually really functional. You can look across the table and see exactly what forces are arrayed against you. And ultimately, the toy factor married to excellent game design is extremely appealing, but not with some of those discovery cards. So true. So it could be a dwellings of Eldervale problem or a or a nemesis problem where they have those random take that stuff that some people enjoy. Maybe it's just that part of it we don't like. Maybe some people will. Who knows? But the fact that I'm very much looking forward to playing it again means something. Absolutely. There's a even even underneath some of the hurt feelings and some of the bad the bad vibes of some of the discovery cards. It is impossible to deny that a lot of excellent design work has gone in, gone into Seismic. And indeed, as a student of Troops on Map games, it, you know, it, it ticks a lot of the boxes that we like in terms of 
avoiding the common pitfalls. This isn't this this isn't like playing Steam Watchers, where it's like, how did this get published now? How have they not learned any of the lessons over the past ten years? Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing Seismic's developments. It's going to be up on crowdfunding soonish. But as I say, I hope that some progress is made in the areas that that I I want. And uh, other than that, the fundamentals seem solid. And that's Seismic by Jason Blake and Star Reach Games. I get to play more Summoner Wars. After commenting that I found that the second edition of Summoner Wars was really the edition that allows the strengths to shine, I was it was then pointed out to me that there is online play for free. There's a dedicated web portal for Summoner Wars play. And Summoner Wars is sufficiently simple and straightforward that I was willing to give it a shot, especially if there was AI. There is AI, and it is indeed free. You start, you get two free factions, and you can buy additional ones for four bucks a pop American, which is a pretty reasonable price for playing them online, and not like an egregiously duplicative price. I hate it when, you know, you can get the online version or the retail version with physical comp- components, and they're both basically the same price, and then I feel like I'm buying the thing twice. But if I'm buying the deck for 15, and then you ask another four for online, eh, that's seems vaguely reasonable. Again, especially since, as I pointed out, there is AI there. It'd be really cool if they had a code in the retail version that you could use on the online and get the deck if you've bought, if you paid for the retail version. Or maybe even a discount. I don't know. I mean, we're we're, we're quibbling with relatively small costs here, especially given that in the context of other skirmishy type things, Summer Wars is already a huge bargain. Uh, Their distribution model and their choices to components is absolutely preferable to the overwhelming majority of other systems out there. There was recently a conversation online uh, with Charlie Teal and Matt Thrower, uh, as well as myself contributing briefly about why is it that so many skirmish systems are so incredibly exploitive when it comes to pricing. So the latest example of this is the D&D skirmish game. The base box is incredibly expensive and each faction expansion is something like $60 USD. And so... At that point, quibbling over four bucks for an online faction seems somewhat churlish. Anyway, the online play was very satisfying. Summoner Wars games are very fast, very satisfying. But the only problem that I had with it, and one of the reasons why I don't think I'll be returning back to online much, which is hardly saying much, I I hardly, hardly ever play board games digitally if I can avoid it, is that the special abilities of the cards are only visible, or at least the descriptions of them are only visible when you click on them and then you have the card blow up to, to, to full volume. So as somebody who is not entirely conversant in all the keywords in Summoner War 2nd Edition, and as somebody who finds it difficult to internalize the board state without knowing the special abilities of the units involved, which is hardly uncommon. It's a skirmish game. You need to know the special abilities of the units therein. Otherwise, things don't make sense. It, it was a little bit more alienating than I like from my digital experiences. That's that's my key objection, once again, to rehash for the thousandth time why I don't like Tabletop Simulator, why I don't like Tabletopia, why I don't like these online implementations, is because I feel like I can't get a sense of the game state from a single glance the way I can in real life. Yeah, this is the second time in a month that I have no games running on, on BGA. Mm. Like, normally I would have 10 to 15, and I have nothing. Wow. At any rate, I was, all that having been said... Uh, I found the Summoner Wars implementation online very satisfying, and you can't argue with the price. So if you've never tried the game, or if you're interested in how the second edition differs from the first, or if you're just a hardcore fan and you haven't tried Summoner Wars online, I highly recommend it. It's a great implementation. And, and Was it definitely just one-offs, or did they follow like a story, or was there like a tutorial that... There are a variety of other features that you can unlock, and some of them are hidden behind a paywall, but a basic one-on-one versus the computer where you play one of your two decks and you pick any one of the available decks as your 
AI-controlled opponent, that is 100% free. And so those were my primary experiences. I wasn't interested in getting involved in, in, in throwing more money at it. If I am going to throw more money at Summoner Wars, which I may very well might, it's going to be to buy physical decks. And again, that's not going to represent a significant investment in terms of money, so I might well do that in the near future. So that's Summoner Wars 2nd Edition, designed by Colby Dotch, Plat Hat Games. I return to Weather Machine, designed by Vidal Lacerda, and put out by Eagle Griffin Games. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I just think Vidal Lacerda is not for me. It very much leads to, no, you don't get to do that. Almost mm. every, you know, I, you know, you set something up and says, no, you forgot this one. You set up the four of the five things you need to do in yeah. order to get the gears. So you and didn't then, do the fifth thing. Yeah. The fifth turn. And now, you know, but that was your last turn. So yeah. you, you thought you had a turn and then it's like, no, you still, you, you, even though you have all your ducks in a row, you didn't publish a paper. So you didn't. <laughs> well, you didn't get the permit for the ducks. Well, I, pu- I published the paper already. Oh. And I got that point. But then if you wanted to hit it again, even though you did the, all this other stuff to set up for it, you still have to have that published paper. You need sure. that sixth step. Sure. That being said, it is much like. Isn't the sixth step acknowledging that you're powerless before a higher power of namely Vitalis Erta? I think so. I tried. I really did. <laughs> yeah. You've given them a lot of chances, I gotta say. I, I, I You've yeah. done your diligence. You've tried a lot of different Vitalis Erta games, and you've really put in the effort. I think I'm so. I'm impressed. And I, I, not for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Weather Machine. Vitalis Erta. <laughs> so it, it, let me just ask, though, because I am genuinely curious. Having played a fair number of different big box Vitalis or heavy games, do they feel do they feel significantly different to you? I think so. Okay, and under that context, do you think that Weather Machine represents some of his better work or some of his less good work? I would, I would say, would be in the middle somewhere. Okay, a middling Lacerda. Agreed. I went back to Skytier Horde. After our somewhat disappointing experience playing it two-player, I went back to playing it solo because Skytier Horde, as a reminder, has an excellent AI system and most excellent Magic Style-esque My 4-5 against your 2-4 kind of uh, creature combat. And the setup is incredibly trivial, and it was pointed out to me that one of our complaints, namely the very, very low amount of card influx which means you don't get to play with a lot of toys, which means you can get stuck without a great deal of variety, which means you feel like you don't get a whole lot of options, is addressed by the Kickstarter exclusive player faction. Oh, of course. Yes. So there are three decks available in the retail version, three deck, three player decks. There's a whole bunch of monster decks, a whole bunch of different castles, a whole bunch of different this, that, and the other. But the three player decks get supplemented in the Kickstarter version by a fourth yellow player deck. So I went out and I tried the yellow player deck. Many yellow spells do something and then you get to draw a card or you get to trigger an effect and then you get to draw a card. And then it feels a lot more like other card games where, you know, there's a reasonable influx of cards and you have the standard card game hand management stuff. And I have to say, with the yellow deck, it feels almost like an entirely different game. <laughs> and my one salient criticism of Sky Tier Horde completely goes away. And so I, I really think that they've missed the boat with the yellow, the yellow deck. The yellow deck ought to have been in the base game. Because even by the admission of the rulebook, the green deck in Skytier Horde is not really for novices. So generally speaking, if you want to have something hidden behind the Kickstarter wall, make it the thing for more experience play, I would think. Unless you're then worried that your retail version has only the noob decks, but whatever. 
I'm disappointed that I didn't get to start with the yellow deck. I'm disappointed I didn't get to show you the yellow deck first off. I still don't know how good it will feel two-player because you're still not getting as many cards at the system two-player as you would one-player, whether or not the yellow faction's involved. But uh, since making that discovery, I have since played Skytier Horde two more times over the course of this week. So I played it three times uh, total since I last discovered it. Again, when it's that quick to set up and that quick to play, uh, the commitment is negligible. And I have to say that this is one of those occasions where, very much like Thulu Death May Die, my preferred version is hidden behind the Kickstarter exclusives, which kind of stinks. It was an expensive enough retail product already. I don't know how much the Kickstarter deluxe versions are going for, probably more than they're worth, such as the way of things. But I I'm left in an awkward place now. I don't know if I can recommend the retail version of Skytier Horde, case depending. Probably not for multiplayer play, if you really want to be able to see cards coming in. But as it is, if you can have access to the Kickstarter version, I highly recommend starting with the yellow deck and then uh, working your way forward, dealing with card scarcity, therefore. Uh, but as it is, one of my favorite solo games, probably my favorite solo game that I've tried this year. So, really enjoying Skytier Horde by Giacomo Neri and Ricardo Neri of Skytier Games. So, for the past couple of weeks, we've been experiencing a game. We haven't actually played the game, but we've been experiencing the game. This is called League of the Lexicon. This is published by Two Brothers Game. And what it is is a trivia game. And it's a trivia game that is 100% up my alley. I actually carry sort of like a stack of these cards with me because I find the questions fantastic. I love words. I love word manipulation and the history of languages and that is what all these questions are about. Even though it's about like root language as opposed to how the language has progressed over time and sometimes the questions can be a little bit misleading, still 100% for me. Unfortunately, this is married to a traditional trivia pursuit type <laughs> game mechanism where everyone is given a character card at the beginning of the game and these character cards have symbols along the bottom and every time you answer a question correctly, you flip over an artifact and you hope that it matches a symbol that is on your character card and if it doesn't, uh-oh, well, you get to keep that card and do other things once you've accumulated a bunch of them but other than that, you know, keep trugging along until you get, you know, all five. Painful. <laughs> Shouldn't say that because we actually have not played that part of it but sure. still, I think we know enough that we that it would be painful. So if even if like if you want a trivia night or you know just to do a filler, the which we've been using it for, or uh, while you're sitting at the restaurant waiting, they're great sort of questions just to pull out and and discuss them. Even not even just like you know cycle through them, just discuss even the questions. And we have interesting trivia questions like that. It's something. I hate this Walker. I hate it so much. I've been humoring you. I loathe most of the questions in League of the Lexicon. Would you like my uh, trivial objections first or my more substantial ones later? I'll take them all. Give me the trivial ones first. Okay, actually, I can kind of put them under the same umbrella. It is mildly chauvinistic in the sense of operating from a very myopic perspective. All right? Now, sometimes this man... I'm not saying that this, is, this, this, this commits serious cultural crimes in the sense of systematically excluding marginalized people. Uh, but, for example, it says, list 10 books uh, from the New Testament. It doesn't say 10 books from the New Testament of the Christian Bible. And when it talks about the Old Testament, it doesn't say the Hebrew Bible or doesn't acknowledge anything. It just says the Old Testament. I find that a little, a little off. 
But this sort of sense of, of myopic chauvinism is heightened if it, in its approach to language. Because when it is asking you which form is linguistically correct, and already my hackles get raised, it is referring exclusively to certain subsets of dialogue. Let me give you an example. So, it loves to ask which of the following sentence is grammatically correct. One of them was, the data is and the data are. Well, anybody that is familiar with different varieties of English can tell you that depending on which dialect of English you're using, data either can be rendered as singular or as plural in the overall grammatical structure. It indeed varies by profession. That's just emblematic of its approach. It has a certain dialect in mind. You have to guess what that dialect is. It may or may not be your dialect. And so I, I, I find questions like that very painful. Yeah, but it spurns conversations like this, right? <laughs> about Where how you, I hate it? No, about, no, about <laughs> the origin of that word and how it's used. And how okay, it's used the and... questions about etymology, I've got no problems with. There are lots of questions about etymology. Where did this word come from? As I was like, I don't know. It's like, it comes from the 16th century Middle English thing. It's like, okay, fine, great, that, whatever. Then it's just solid generic trivia stuff. And that's not for me, but a lot for a lot of people it is. But then why, when it has, and again, like when it comes to books of the Christian New Testament or books from the Hebrew Bible, there are right or wrong answers to that. Although even in the case of the New Testament, then there's Apocrypha, different Christian sects acknowledge different bits from the New Testament and others don't. But anyway, setting all that aside, why then are so many of the questions, which of the following are grammatically correct? And my first answer is, this question doesn't work. And I don't even know a whole lot about linguistics. It's, uh, Maybe it's just for their target audience. I, like, it so it they, just bothers me. It's it, I, I find it, it, it adopts a very specific viewpoint and stance and then kind of presents that viewpoint and stance as some sort of weird harmonized objective truth. Yes. And that I that, that bothers me. Is, that rubs me the wrong way. This is the correct way to speak. Precisely. Yes, and I, so. I, that, I, I'm, not, I'm not down with that kind of framing. Doesn't do it for me. I like that you appreciate those kinds of questions and find them uh, thought-provoking. I find League of the Lexicon, when it is not merely being trivial, I find it borderline obnoxious. And the production is right off through the roof. This was a, a review copy that was sent to us. What else did you play this week, Mark? <laughs> we got to play Turncoats after week after week of Walker saying, no, 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 I want to play Turncoats. We finally got Turncoats at the table. Turncoats is designed by Matilda Simonson of Milda Matilda Games. It is a beautiful production, consisting as it is of a felt bag, which is also the board, and then a series of colored stones. And I have to say that Turncoats is probably the epitome of the kind of game that I respect more than I enjoy. The design work is phenomenal. It is marvelously minimalistic. I would say that Turncoats definitely puts to shame other games of this ilk, specifically games where you have a secret allegiance that is nominally hidden until potentially the end of the game. Games like A War of Whispers, or even some of Colavini's stuff like Clans. I think Turncoats is vastly better done, both in terms of simplicity and in terms of tension. What it also has, and I draw this comparison because it's a very characteristic element of a lot of his work, the Pear Sylvester feeling of any play I make weakens my position because you have to have the most influence in the winning faction and also make that faction win at the same time. Balancing those two is frightfully difficult. And to me, it induces a kind of stress. So while playing turncoats, I'm like, wow, this is really impressive. 
and I feel like I can't take any moves. And right. so I just yeah, I just feel paralyzed while at the same time blown away by the quality of the design. So this is absolutely one of those games that if this is your kind of thing, you should absolutely try it if you haven't already. But first of all, this isn't my kind of thing generally. And furthermore, I just find it overly tense if that's any if that's at all possible. Yeah, to strengthen a faction, you must play a token that gives you strength in that faction. Right. right? That gives you ownership of that fact you're sacrificing your own strength for the sake of the board presence which you kind of have to do so there's this constant juggling act between your strength and the faction and their overall strength and you don't know what anyone else is gunning for it's the the presentation of uncertain information is masterful and really i am taken aback by how well designed turncoats is i've yeah, now played it three or four times though and i just find it an incredibly daunting experience yeah it gives me a knitzia feel it's such it's such a boiled down simple decision Tons of tactical decision type game. Did you enjoy it, Walker? Oh, yes. Very much so. Good, good. I'm glad. Then we got to play a very interesting game. This is called Tribes of the Wind. This is designed by Joachim Thom. I would say Joachim Thom. Joachim Thom. And published by... Is that why you wanted me to lead into it? No, no. This wasn't a trap, Walker. Published by La Boite de Jeu. Artist is Vincent Dutrait. And so you know it's going to look beautiful. Or and, Vincent Dutre, even. And it, it does look beautiful. <laughs> yes. It does I'm sorry. Look- in hindsight, this really seems like I was trying to set you up. I and, wasn't and, trying to set you up. And it does look beautiful. <laughs> and it, and its hook is that you're going to be using the backs of your players to the left and to the right. And it's not so much uh, – it's not really secret or anything. It's not like a Hanabi or anything like that. It's just you're going to use the colors of the cards that they have. They're going to power your cards depending on what card you play because it could be a card that means you have to have those symbols or you can use, you know, from your left or right. There are broadly speaking uh, a handful of different types of card criteria. One of them might be do you have more of this suit than one neighbor or two neighbors? Or tally up the total number of instances of the suit across both of your neighbors and yourself. And of the various four suits, they will power different kinds of things. And uh, consequently, you have to know the backs of all the cards of your neighbor's hands. But as Walker says, you don't use this to make inferences about what your opponents might do. You just use them as fodder for determining how powerful your own card effects will be. And I think there was just enough mix of the different card types, like... Like you said, have more of, have less than, or, you know, how different ways they manipulated the cards. I think they had, that part of the game was perfect. Just not too many to make it complicated and not few enough to make it dead simple. And then there was, that was mixed, married to a whole sort of player board where you're, it's sort of a post-apocalyptic thing where you're trying to rebuild society. So you're putting out towns and temples and you're, you're trying to, every time you put out a village, you get these scoring cards, which mean, which will tell you don't have different colored, you know, uh, tiles in different orders or temples in certain places, all different types of scoring things. I thought it was a great experience, much better than I thought it was going to be. That's for sure. I was very surprised by how clever the action selection mechanism is. Just the way the cards work, I thought was great. Really, really, really well done. Constantly forcing you to be flexible and changing uh, your priorities based on what's available to you. Uh, It just shakes out perfectly. Initially, I was disappointed because I felt like, oh, well, you know, there's not going to be enough player interaction because I don't really care or know what they're going to be playing. And sure enough, that's a bit of a thing. But ultimately, it's just dynamic enough to make the sort of internal economy of your card actions to be very, very compelling. And so I loved the card play. I thought the game was a bit too long. Yeah, I was going to say about 10% too long, but I think it might have yeah. been, been a first play thing. Possibly. 
It just it, it ended up feeling a little bit repetitive because what you need to do is you need to clear land, build a tile, move people there, build a village. You do that over a course of five times and then the game ends. That's pretty much the only way to win. The only way to win is to build villages. All the scoring conditions relate to villages. Well, some of them relate to tiles, which are... Anyway, but by and large, that was the overwhelming focus of a game of Tribes of the Wind. And so I wonder if even just playing to four villages might be better. I don't know. I'm not suggesting this is a house rule, but I mean, structurally speaking, I felt right around the middle of the game, things kind of started dragging. It's like, okay, well, I've, I've gotten into the rhythm of building villages now. I just keep doing this again and again. There's a little bit of timing in there, right? Because one of the, it's either play a card or build a village. And so you could have the village already set up to be built and you could just be waiting for maybe a couple of village cards to cycle through before you had one that you really liked and then started spending actions on building villages. I thought that was kind of interesting as well. Oh, it's true. Yeah. The timing considerations, despite not emerging from actual player interaction are quite compelling, whether it's, well, I need to play this card now because it'll be get a lot worse. If one of my neighbors plays a yellow when I don't want them to, or I need to build this village now because I need to snag that objective card before anyone else can. Those trade-offs introduced in your largely multiplayer solitaire game of laying out tiles at your own board really do manage to add spice to what otherwise could have been a very procedural affair. I just wish that there had been a little bit more, you know, mid to late game interest because you just feel like you're doing the same thing over and over. But that having been said, the same thing you're doing is pretty excellent. So I, too, was very, very pleasantly surprised by Tribes of the Wind. Those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and Luxuriating in the One and Only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now. ExpressVPN.com slash games, And you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash so wrong games. Mark, there's going to be a game coming out called Three Ring Circus. This is by one of our favorite designers, Fabio Lupiano, and it's also going to be designed by Romeo Conzadori. We love Fabio, and this is going to be a. We're on a first name basis. Oh, yeah, yeah. He calls we, us all the time. We call him Fab. Yeah. Uh, he has done uh, Kalamala, games of that type, Audubon. More recently. Oh, Autobahn. <laughs> oh, Autobahn. You're so amazing. Anyway, it's true. Um, so very much looking forward to it. You're building, you know, it's a, a period piece. You're back in, you know, Barlam and Bailey's time. They're going around and they're doing their circus and you're traveling the small villages doing yours. And it seems like it's going to be interesting. Everyone, everything that he does seems to have something interesting in it. So I'm looking forward to checking it out. Three Ring Circus. Joseph McCullough is the author of Frostgrave, as well as Rangers of Shadowdeep, as well as the Silver Bayonets. And while I tried the Silver Bayonets and I love the setting, the combat resolution system didn't really uh, please me as a, as a tabletop miniatures game. But Silver Bayonets is getting that most important of expansions, Walker, 
the Canada Sourcebook. Ooh. This is actually going to be written by Ash Barker, and he's actually Canadian, so we can hope that it's, we're not going to have too many things like Wermoose. Although, actually, now that I say it, I could go for a Wermoose. I was going to say, I was ho- we're not going to have, like, Werebeavers and then the, the, the Were hockey team. Well, hockey probably less so, because this is going to be about the seven... Uh, this is going to be the, the aftermath of the War of 1812. Oh. And the system already has werebears. We might have some of those, but uh, I don't know. I can get behind a moose. I'm talking myself into it. Anyway, so this is going to be released by Osprey Games later this year. The expansion is Silver Bayonets, Canada. And lastly for me is the board game that I think wins. Mantic has done it, Mark. Best board game title ever. Dungeon Saga Origins Legendary Edition. Oh, my that, goodness. That's quite a name. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I think you're right. I think we just have to retire yeah, naming conventions. Exactly. They've just done it. Yeah. Just number board games now. This board game 1127. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Dungeon so, Saga Origins so, Legendary Edition. So we talked last week about Gatefall, the game of bigotures by Jack Tire Studios. Uh, little did I know that as we were talking about it, it, the latest expansion is up on crowdfunding. You can go to GameFound. And find Gatefall Monsters. You can find the base game. You can get the expansions. You can get the new one. All I have to say at a very, very reasonable price. If you, For the quality of miniatures you get, for the quality of components, for the quality of the game, this is a game that could easily crowdfund for 25% of the cost that it already is. The expansion's a mere $29, which is fabulous. I've never been disappointed with any of my crowdfunding of Jack Dyer Studios. So if you're at all curious, go check out Gatefall Monsters on GameFound right now. Finally, for me, there's been a bit of drama on Twitter about the experiences recounted of someone who had a very, very negative experience, uh, hostility, outright mansplaining some gaslighting at a Necromunda tournament at a recent gaming event. And I just want to say that I realize upon some reflection that I'm very much part of the problem here, not because I think in the recent past I've engaged in any such forms of outward hostility towards marginalized people or racialized individuals uh, trying to just exist in the hobby space, but rather I've basically ceded the tournament scene to people of that disposition because I don't like what happens in tournaments. People tend to get very hyper-aggressive, very competitive, as you might imagine, in a tournament context. And so I didn't want that as part of my gaming, and so I don't do tournaments anymore. But I realize that that's basically becoming part of the problem, because it's not just the jerks. It's not just the idiots. It's not just the a-holes who would yell at somebody or make them feel less than or not make them feel like they're part of the hobby. It's the fact that there are bystanders who don't say anything. And it's also the fact that there are people who could try to make sure that there are positive presence in various parts of these spaces, but don't. And I say this in particular because there are many games for whom the tournament scene is the scene. Uh, you know, it's just the case that if you want to play Games Workshop games, for example, in a lot of different contexts, you do so at tournaments. That's the nature of the beast. And there are lots of other games that operate on the same principle. And so it's all well and good for me to say, oh, well, you know, I don't do tournaments anymore, so I'll just leave that. That's basically ceding ground to trolls. Not that they're all trolls, not that they're all like that, but it is incumbent on people like us who I think at least try to be good allies and and to allow for a more inclusive, more tolerant, more safe space in the hobby universe for marginalized people to basically insert ourselves in these situations to try to help out other people who are in a position that need access. And so I think it, th- this, this incident and the way that people have been talking about it have caused me to reflect on my own sort of withdrawing behavior. 
And uh, I think it's it's important to acknowledge that as allies, there's always more stuff that we can do to try to make the hobby a better place. And so if you see something, speak up. Not, again, not in a sort of aggressive confrontational way, because aggression means aggression. But, you know, it's important that we speak up and be as aggressive as we need to be to allow people to exist safely in our hobby space wherever possible. And if that means in tournament settings as well, then absolutely that means participating in tournament settings. Not even necessarily as a competitor, as a judge, as a bystander, as an adjudicator, whatever, what have you. And that has caused me to consider uh, no tournament sense. Like I said, when you look back and reflect, are you going to be proud of what you did? That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the main review, which is Wolves by Pandasaurus Games. Is it Wolves or is it The Wolves? That's a good question. It's The Wolves. My bad. That's fine. This is what editorial standards looks like, though. It's true. You know, today it's a definite article. Tomorrow you're misspelling authors' names. And then you're just referring to games as a series of codes. Oh, I see. I see. So it's not all wolves that that do this. It's only the wolves. The wolves. Like the, the wolves. The, the ones in this box. Yeah. 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 If someone else the buys wolves it, in the box. Yeah. If someone else buys it. Those then those are, might, no. But those, those aren't the wolves. Those okay. are those wolves. All right. Now I get it. Right. Now on to the main review, which is the wolves. These wolves. Those wolves. The other wolves. The one Pandasaurus wolves. Got it. This was designed by Ashwin Kamath and Clarence Simpson, published by Pandasaurus Games last year, and it concerns just the wolves in the box. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in The Wolves, the two-to-five player pack-building game from Pandasaurus Games. You and your pack of wolves are marking your territory all across the land. Good thing you're set up near water. You can rehydrate. <laughs> you're, you're growing your pack. You're hunting for dinner. In the hopes of clearing your personal board for increasing point rewards. So this is what Walker would call a tableau building game. And I'm not really sure if there's a good accepted technical term for what it no, is. No, it's not, it's not a tableau building. It's a tableau deconstruction game. <laughs> okay, sure. I, I can go for that. <laughs> well, you know, in, in the traditional style, often associated with Scythe, you've got all your pieces. The more pieces you put out, the better values you reveal and the more points you can score. Whether it's Hansa Teutonica, whether it's Terra Mystica, whether it's Gaia Project, whether it's Scythe. You know, things of, things of that ilk. You've got your little dens. And as you build dens over the course of the, uh, of the game, your values get better and your wolves get faster and you start being able to move more wolves and howl better and things like that. And much like Scythe, the rules are very easy to teach due to your player boards having great rules explanations. It even comes with a, you know, like a reference summary card, card, yeah. summary card that pretty well tells you the whole game and everything's on that, on those cards. There's a little bit of tweaking, which we'll get to later on, but medium setup, easy to get going. Joy to teach. So the action selection is, once again, somewhat clever. You have these tiles at the top of your board. You have one tile that is always the same. It's the same on both sides. Other tiles, you flip them as they activate them, and they depict the various types of terrain that are on the board. The board itself is made up of these large tiles that you build at the start of the game. So there's a bit of variety, but basically it's just an abstracted set of terrains. So, for example, if I wanted to move to forest, I would flip over a forest tile, or just if I had a double-sided forest tile because I were forest wolves, I would just gesture to it and say, well, you know, I'm, well, you don't have to flip it, but depends on how hardcore you want to be or how much you want to respect the formalism, as we say in our group. Or if someone's learning it, so you can just like show them how it's done. Absolutely. 
then other actions require that you have multiple of the same, and this requires some setup, generally speaking, as a rule. So if you want to build a den on Tundra, you need to have two Tundra tiles face up. This might require you to do a slightly suboptimal move to flip that other tile that was desert on the other side, for example, so you can do the double Tundra. And this, of course, leading up to perhaps the most powerful and obnoxious move in the game of the wolves, which is the dominate action, which will require three of the same uh, tile, which is technically impossible, except for everyone's favorite terrain type, unless, of course, you cheat by using special tokens. It's true. And and this is where it leads into your player board, because, you know, it's, it would be like, well, how far can I move? Well, it's right there. And it's something <laughs> that you can improve. The more dens you put out, the better you get at certain actions. Uh, you can move more wolves. You can move them further. You have a howl range because the board is seeded with all these lone wolves at the beginning of the game. And this is how you mainly grow your pack is you, you branch out and you start calling because you're howling to these lone wolves and they join your pack. And there's two types of wolves. There's like the baby pup wolves and pack there's wolves. the pack wolves and there's the alpha wolves. And most of the work's done by the alpha wolves, but the, the, pack- o- the overwhelming majority of actions are done exclusively by alpha wolves. The pack wolves serve mostly to exert some area control, more on that later, and to help you with hunting. Other than that, if you're going to be howling, building a down, building a, building a lair, moving people around, shoving people out, making a big push for area majority, you're going to be doing it with your alphas. We commented on this before when we first discussed the wolves in passing, but there's no such thing as alpha wolves. I, I mention this because it's unfortunate from the theming of the game, especially since it furthers a commonly held misconception, right? If this were not already a widely false, a widely held false belief about wolves, it would be bad enough. But also I can't help but feel that the the myth of the alpha wolf has also kind of had a weird influence in culture broad, more broadly and not for the good. I'm not saying that the game of the wolves is responsible for toxic masculinity, but I'm saying that the fact that there's even a tenuous connection means that maybe they do, should have done a little bit more research when publishing the game. Well, and the fact that it took me all of three seconds <laughs> yes. to, to find out about it, just to double check. Yeah. Was, it's was odd. it's not as bad as totem poles in Manitoba. All right, That's true, but it's definitely of a similar class, <laughs> shall we say? Or false gods in yes, yes, the Kotahi. Yes, <laughs> who, could for, who could forget the Kotahi? Yes. So yes, you get to do two actions, and you're going out, and you're trying to get control of certain the actual map tiles. And on each map tile, there is a pool. And at the beginning of the game, they're all covered with moons, crescent, half, and full. So there's a very interesting sort of round mechanism, I guess you could say, or end of game mechanism. Because every time you take something off your board, it goes on the main map board. And if anything affects that, that removes it, it goes onto the calendar. And as it ticks down, it's going to trigger scoring and all the crescent moons are going to score first. And they're sort of seated on single map boards and whoever has the most presence there is going to score them we've sort of found out in the, in the games that we played that that's not so much the major scoring parts and so it's one of those games where you have to sort of clear your board and do other things on the way to getting that like it's like either you call it like okay i'm not gonna bother with that one it's too far away or someone else already has too much presence there so i'm just gonna work on future ones or i'm just gonna work on clearing my board 
I will say that the tempo effects are very interesting in the wolves. Sometimes you have a number of rounds where you don't make any temporal progress on the so-called calendar, and sometimes it happens very, very precipitously. I never really got the sense that I was in a position to predict how quickly things were going to go, but nonetheless, I did appreciate that there was a sort of ebb and flow of, of the pacing of things. Anytime anything gets removed from the map, whether it's because you're converting a lone wolf or converting somebody else's wolf or converting a den, what have you, that's when things go up in the map. So you can exert a certain amount of control over it. It's like, I want the game to accelerate. Okay, I had best target things on the map rather than just mucking about with my own infrastructure. And that part I really enjoyed. I do agree with you, though, and this is in fact one of my key complaints about the wolves, that when it's first set up, one gets this image that it's going to be an area majority contest. And indeed, the fact that alpha wolves can potentially with great difficulty convert other things or with slightly less difficulty shove other wolves off the tile... I was looking forward to primarily an area-majority game with some interesting action selection. That's not really what it feels like at the end of the day, because in the Wolves, a solid bulk of the winning scores of the games that I've observed have indeed come from your board. And so this is just a personal preference, to be frank. I like area-majority games, and I find them very tense and very competitive, and they tend to lead to more player interaction. I found that the Wolves leaned more towards the board manipulation, which is less interactive, less tense, less interesting as far as I'm concerned, and I wish it had leaned more into that other scoring mechanism. Well, in the full moon, the very final phase, I feel it is definitely more competitive, because by then you've cleared as much as your board as you think you're going to do, and so getting those last full moon spaces, I think there were, there was a lot of of jockeying for position. Yes, there's more because the points do escalate, but even the last round's points don't really get you in a position to win. For example, let's say that somebody in a game of the Wolves managed to win first place in all three end game scoring tiles. That would net them 24 points. That's not anywhere near a winning score. That's not a good score at all. So again, the bulk of their points would come from elsewhere. Now granted, of course, if you win all three in the last round, you're probably going to get some points on the way. But you take my point. Yes. The, I don't, I mean, maybe even, again, I'm not suggesting fixing the game, but in order to make it more to my taste, maybe even doubling the area majority scoring overall would, would have a salient effect. Who knows? I love the fact, like I said, because it's so easy to teach, there are all but two symbologies and it all breaks down into the bonus tokens for clearing parts of your board. You're going to get tiles that represent the the tiles at the top of your board that let you do actions. You can just discard them instead of flipping a tile. So you can do that, you know, to dominate in other areas rather than your, your main one, or you're getting extra action tokens, which can be sometimes crazy because you're allowed to store them up and spend them all in one turn. So technically instead of getting two, you could get six, eight turns in one round, which sometimes leads to a little bog down of, of, of the rules because sometimes in the middle of the turn, something opens up for you and you realize you can do other things. So you start spending these tokens, but I don't think it's overall too bad. Yeah. The temp again, it's, it's an interesting bit of tempo in the wolves about when to spend your extra actions in a lot of say Euro games. If you get extra actions, you spend them right away because they tend to have compounding benefits. But in a game of the wolves, a lot of it is about jockeying, about timing, whether it is about area majority scoring or elements of your own board. It often depends on, well, how do my tiles look? Can I make a good play based on where my wolves are and what my tiles look like? Eh, not really. I'll hold on to them, wait for later and see if I can make a good, good push later. That part was interesting because you don't want to wait too long. You might end up with, with leftovers at the end of the game. That's bad. You don't want that. So, again, again a, a trade-off choice. But as you say, 
the there there is a bit of downtime. I mean, we're we're talking about a perfect information, no luck, somewhat abstracted game where sometimes the entire position your entire situation on the board can change between turn to turn. So sometimes it's the case that your turn comes up, you know exactly what you're gonna do, it happens, you move on. Sometimes turns turns take a little bit longer. You're playing a four or five player game. Eh, it can drag a little bit because there's nothing for you to do in your turn. Sometimes you feel like you can't prepare, and sometimes everyone's cashing in their extra action tokens and you're just sitting there waiting. It's true. I like there's a lot of sort of barriers in the way. The fact that you can only have one layer, which is your up, most upgraded building, one per tile, and it must be around the scoring position. The fact that only you can only have two pieces in each hex that the fact that alpha wolves block areas i love that does lead to some dynamic situations sometimes oh yeah you have to look at a board position you have to look at a tile and you have to figure out how can i crack this this position i find that most often in the case of prey this is one area of scoring that we haven't discussed if you're able to surround a prey token with uh three hexes worth of wolves then you get to score it this can be worth rather large amount of points because they they score triangularly based on the number of different prey you have. And frequently, after a prey has been claimed for the first time, or just as about, it's about to be claimed for the first time, there are all these opponent wolves in the way, and you have to think about how to get your wolves into position, and or you start wondering about whether you can do it in time. Those are, in fact, in many ways, the most interactive moments in the wolves, more so than the area majority scoring. Because, again, if you want to have a really competitive score, it's real hard to do that unless you've got a solid prey track. And that does sort of, that leads down, I think, to the main sort of bogging down of, of the turns because uh, placing, it's the only token that goes onto your player board. And as soon as you put it on your player board, you get a extra action. And then you can use that extra action to get another prey, which will let you get an extra action. So they sort of chain off of each other. The walker maneuver. And suddenly you're getting a bunch of extra actions and slowing the game down. You don't want to, (laughs) but if you don't get those prey tokens, someone else will take them and then you won't have them. Yeah, yeah. In instances where it's the case that you can string them along with that, absolutely one should do that. Uh, It's just all told... Given that it's a perfect information, no luck, sort of abstracty adjacent kind of thing, it can feel like it bogs down a little bit between turns in cases where you feel like you're not in a position to pre-plan your turn. Now, that, that's a bit of a, a that, that's, that's a lot of nested conditionals. And I will say that overall, in terms of overall game length, the Wolves has never outstayed its welcome. It's a relatively brief affair. We're talking about, you know, certainly no more than about 20 to 25 minutes per player tops, absolute maximum. Uh, probably more like an hour overall if you're playing with people who really know what they're doing uh, across player counts, most likely. And so I, I do find it's very satisfying from an overall length perspective. But again, sometimes between turns, I find myself finding myself waiting. And the production is very nice. It looks gorgeous on the board. The meeples, the wolf. Wuffle? Weeples doesn't sound right. Wuffles? Wuffles? Wuffles. Oh, geez. Woofs. The wolf. The woofs. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah, they're nice. They're nicely sculpted. (laughs) I really like the artwork, quite frankly. I mean, the player boards are very colorful, and they do a very, very good job of trying to sell you that there could be such thing as a green player faction of wolves. (laughs) Which I I would not have thought that was possible, but they, they try real hard. (laughs) <laughs> so overall, I would play the Wolves anytime. I like the fact that it goes up to five, even though it does slow it down. But at least it's one of those games that you can teach easily to five players. And w- sometimes, especially with newer players that 
can't won't combo immediately it will move fast at first and then they'll get to learn it and hopefully the ones that will bog it down they'll get to know it and it won't be so slow i find the wolves has a very satisfying action selection mechanism and it is married to a sometimes equally satisfying board position series of tactical puzzles and stalemates and attempts to compete for various areas at the end of the day, though, I am always left feeling slightly disappointed because, number one, most plays of the Wolves feel the same to me. I feel like I'm doing the same thing game after game. And I'm also wishing that the those tactical board positions from directly competing with other players were more prevalent and constitute a greater proportion of the game. The proportion of the game that's just about get a certain number of dens out and upgrade a certain number of those dens to layers. That part tends to feel very often less satisfying, but that's largely a question of personal preference and my desire for it to be more of an area majority game. As it is, it's a very pleasing game, and I agree with you, it is very approachable rules-wise. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information on SoWrongGames.com slash contact there at SoWrongGames.com. You can also search our inventory of episodes and find out all about the Dramatis Personae, the Swag Canon, various other elements of the greater Swag lore, the Swag Extended Universe, or Swagoo, as we call it. Swagoo. Thank you very much for deciding to spend some time with us. We appreciate it a great deal, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.